The following message is brought to you by Champions Church. For more information, please visit champschurch.com. Uh, we're going to get into the Word. I'm excited to get into the Word this morning. I love having our kids with us. I know oftentimes it means, you know, drawing and coloring pages, but, you know, I grew up in church, not necessarily in children's ministry, and I love children's ministry. I was a children's pastor for a long time. Can you picture that? I got a couple of yeses, yeah. I was a children's pastor. You know what's crazy? I was so on fire for Jesus when I was born again that, that people were looking for, you know, well, where are we going to put this guy? And I don't know what it is, but the kids kind of like me, so they, they said, let's make him a children's pastor. Now, don't tell anybody this. Can I, like, give you a little privileged information, okay? I think I was still on probation. Isn't that weird? That's so weird, right? Now, let's not spread that around. Was that recorded? Did that get recorded? Oh, my God. It's <laughs> uh, so funny. I love it when the kids are in here with us. I just think it's amazing. And, and I know growing up, being able to sit next to your parents and watch your parents go through the Word and the Scripture, it does something great. It just puts something in front of our kids that they need to see. They need to see that we have an appetite for the things of God, that we indulge and enjoy in the Word, and that we enjoy coming to church and we receive great things and we're transformed. It's not just something they need to witness. We should talk about it in front of our kids. It's just good stuff. So I'm glad to have our kids in here with us this morning. I know God's going to do wonderful things. So here's a few things we're going to find in the Word. So if you're taking notes, you can jot these things down. Jot these things down. They're things to look forward to, just things to, to anticipate. One, how to glorify God. Now, we've, we've used this one before, but I think it's important because oftentimes it's very easy for our church life, for our, our celebration of church services to become very ritualistic or traditional. And it's very important for us to understand what glorifies God so that we can live our life in such a way as to bring Him glory. A second thing that we're going to find, the key to peace. The key to peace. Now, you don't have to raise your hand. You're welcome to. How many of you could use a little peace in some area of your life? Yeah, well, I got news for you. I've got kids, so I could raise both hands and say I could use a little peace. Yeah, a little peace. We're going to find the key to peace. I think there's something that's often overlooked that can hinder the level of peace that is in our lives. And then a third thing that we're going to find, and this one doesn't sound very spiritual, but I think it's going to actually make sense when we get there. Who is in the driver's seat? Who's in the driver's seat? Who is in the driver's seat? All right, so let's get into the Word. How to glorify God. We said we're going to find that out. Let's just jump right in and get there. Uh, John chapter 15, verse 8. John chapter 15, verse 8. How to glorify God. If you're taking notes, write it down. If you've got your Bible there, flip through those pages and get there. It's good for us to see these things on the page. John chapter 15, verse 8. Now, Jesus is speaking, and when you see Jesus speaking, you have to understand he's talking to you. 
He's talking to you. He's speaking to you. When he's telling you things about the Father, he's not just telling the disciples that were sitting there in front of him, jotting down notes. He's speaking to every single disciple that would come from their testimony, and that's me and you. Jesus is speaking in John chapter 15, verse 8, and he says this. He says, my Father is glorified by this. What a statement to make. I like that Jesus is kind of a man's man, right? That's a pretty straightforward statement. God is glorified by this. He doesn't waste time with eloquence and poetry, and it's not a riddle. It's just a pretty straightforward statement. God is glorified by this, that you, that who? That you, that's you, that's me. God has glorified this, that you bear much fruit. And then listen to this next part. This next part is pretty cool. And so prove to be my disciples. And so prove to be my disciples. There's something here that's being revealed to us, and it's not meant to offend or be a stumbling block. It's meant to encourage. It's meant to be a measuring stake that we can examine our lives by. In my marriage, am I being fruitful? With raising my children, am I being fruitful? In my vocation, am I being fruitful? In my faith, am I being fruitful? Am I producing or am I consuming? Am I making provision or am I taking? And it's fruitfulness that sets us apart from the rest of the world. It's being the producer. It's being the giver, not the taker. It's being the one that provides and not consumes that sets us apart. It proves discipleship. And so there's something inside of me. Again, it's not being stated to, to humiliate or frustrate. It's being stated to, to light a fire inside of each one of us to kindle something. That my life is meant to be fruitful. And God wouldn't call me to a purpose that he wouldn't make provision for. He's called me to this for a reason. Not to glorify myself, not to stand out as successful or smart or wise in business or excellent in family or marriage, but he's called me to this fruitfulness, according to this scripture, to glorify him. Because this glorifies my Father, that you bear much fruit. And every bit of fruit that comes from our lives testifies that God's good, that he does not just meet our needs, but he makes provision for us to be productive, to not be consumers, but producers. And there's a call on each one of us to be the giver and not the taker. And that requires something. If we're going to bear much fruit, I want to talk about the much. Because there's been times in my life where if I've squeezed out just a little fruit, I felt like I accomplished something great. But the call on my life is to bear much fruit. And something has to happen. And it has to happen in a couple of places. It has to happen here in our hearts. And then it has to happen here in our minds. We begin to look at things different. Our perspective changes and shifts. Our convictions are different. I know that my convictions and my mentality are way different today than they were when I was first born again. There's become deeper conviction, a desire to do the things that God's called me to do. There's been fresh mentality because with every experience where I've seen God prove His faithfulness time and time and time and time again, my mind begins to shift and change. And where I once used to see problem, I don't see problem anymore. 
So something has to happen for this much fruit to take place. It happens in our heart and it happens in our mind. But I think it only happens when we do things like Jesus has set before us as an example. So I want to look today at the keys to multiplication. Because how can we bear much fruit if we don't have fruit multiplied in our life? I want to look at four keys of multiplication. Now, it's very difficult sometimes for us to talk about multiplication or increase or prosperity without people being very limited in their minds that it's a financial message. I've got news for you. It is very much a financial message, but it's not limited to that. It's about being prosperous in our marriage, being prosperous in our family, being prosperous in every aspect of our living. There's a passage of Scripture toward the end of Abraham's life in Genesis. And it reads like this. Now, Abraham was up in years. That's a real polite way of saying he was old. Like, Father Time old. Abraham was up in years, and God had blessed him in every way. I want that. I want that. If somebody is writing the book of Preston, I want some of the last sentences to read just like that. Preston accomplished a whole lot. And as he was up in years, it was evident to everyone around him that God had blessed him in every way. I want that for me. I want it for you. Blessing is a funny word. We use it all the time. If you've ever gotten a text from me, it probably uses the word blessing or blessings or something like that. We use the word, but there's times where I'm not sure that we quite catch it. We're going to look at the word blessing here in just a little bit. But I want to look at the keys to multiplication because Jesus has shown us something. He's shown us how to bear much fruit. And it happens right here in the scripture. If you've got your Bibles, I'd like for you to turn to the book of Mark. We're going to look at the gospel of Mark. We're going to begin reading in chapter 6. Gospel of Mark chapter 6. Now you're going to have to go all the way deep into Mark chapter 6. We're going to start looking at verse 33. And when we get to verse 33, we're going to read for a little bit. So try to read along with me. If you have a different version, just don't get lost and and we'll try to keep up and read through this together. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 33. Now, the people saw them going. I want to pause right there. Jesus had been ministering, and great things were happening. Now, Jesus departed from where he had been ministering and went to another location. But the people that had seen the things that God was doing, the people that had seen the ministry that was taking place, didn't want to part ways with what they had witnessed, and they began to follow after The word had spread, the news was out, and people were wanting to come and receive from what God was doing. That's what's going on here. And the people saw that Jesus was departing, and many of them recognized him, and they ran together on foot from their cities. I want to stop right there. I know I stop a lot, but I can hardly get through a few words without thinking, how incredible is that? They ran on foot. I don't know if you can tell by looking, but I don't run. (laughs) I like the scriptures that talk about holding your ground. 
<laughs> I like that God makes my enemies turn and flee because I'm really not interested in running. These people ran on foot. The scripture is clear about that. And then it, it doesn't say like, you know, to the church on the corner. It says from their cities. So imagine leaving Abilene and just deciding I'm going to sprint all out to Buffalo Gap. I think Jesus is headed to tie. So strap on your tennis shoes and let's go. I mean, it wasn't like this little short effort. These people have obviously seen something, tasted something, caught a glimpse of something that is so magnificent that they're willing to do this tremendous uncomfortable act to go on foot and take off in bolt with no guarantee. It's not as if they had an appointment. Well, I got an appointment to meet with Jesus here, but it's across, you know, it's over in this other city, so I'm going to have to hurry. There's no guarantee. But yet because of the value of what they've seen, they're willing to leave where they're at and take off. They sprint, they run. And when Jesus got to where he was going, he was at the, the seaside, the shore, and he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them. Probably felt compassion for them because they'd just run a long way. And if you've ever run a long way, you know, you might be a little more fit than I am, so it might not be an issue for you. But if you'd seen me after running a long way, I think you would have compassion on me too. I one time decided I was going to start jogging. I jogged, got home. My wife was snickering a little bit. I said, what's so funny? She said, I could hear you a block away. <laughs> she felt compassion on me. But he saw these people that had just taken off running. And they ran because they wanted something. They needed something. They had the promise that it could possibly take place. This hope stirred inside of them. And so they ran. And when Jesus saw them, he had compassion on them. And then it says why. He says they had, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Now, you need to catch something real quick. I haven't tossed it out there, so just catch this right now. This, what we're reading here, is in all four Gospels. It's one of the most documented pieces of history in the Scripture. And throughout the other recordings, you'll see a few other things worded. Now, they're not different occasions. It's the same occasion. But the crowds are so big and what's going on is so tremendous that perspectives might be different. So one guy is recording these things and another guy is recording these things. So to get a full glimpse of these things, you've got to go to every one of the Gospels and read where it's at and you'll see it's the same story from different perspectives. But as Jesus feels compassion for them, based on one of the records, one of the Gospels, it says he began to heal their sick. He began to cast out devils. And they're in a tremendously desolate place. We'll find that here in just a moment. As he's teaching them and as he's healing them and as he's ministering to them, in verse 35 it says, it's already really late. This is a night service. It was already really late and his disciples came up to him and said, hey, this place is desolate. 
And since it's already late, we need to send them away so that they can go into the surrounding villages and get something to eat. And Jesus answered them. Now, he's answering his disciples. Now, just really quickly, who are his disciples? It's me and you. So as Jesus is saying this to them, let's put in our minds that he's saying this to us. We can look out at a city and say, this city's got tremendous need. Father, feed them. Father, take care of them. Father, help them. But Jesus is looking at his disciples and he says, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. And then they said, well, should we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? They have to understand something. This is about a day's wages. So even if you were to take the state of Texas minimum wage at an eight-hour day, 200 days worth of wages, you're looking at nearly $12,000. If we were to take $12,000 and go buy bread, it wouldn't be enough. I think it's funny that they're faced with the problem and their first thing is how much is it going to cost? It's about money with them. And then we see Jesus respond. He says, well, how many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said, well, we've got five loaves and two fish. Now, if you go to the other Gospels that have this recorded, you'll find one that says they didn't have five loaves and two fish, but a young boy in the crowd did. A young boy in the crowd who was probably on his way to do whatever chores or labor he had and had a lunch packed with him. And he saw the crowd of people running. And like most young boys probably thought, that looks fun. Jumped in and ran with them. And so the disciples have been charged with, you give them something to eat. And you've got to keep in mind, their minds are yet to be renewed. Their hearts are yet to be softened. The first thing they think is, well, how much is this going to cost us? Then the next thing they think is, well, we better, we better get it from them. What do you got? Here comes the shakedown. Find a boy that has his lunch. Got five loaves and two fish. Now this started off as a five piece. Five loaves and two fish. He packed his lunch, was ready to work. And these that represent the ministry of Jesus Christ go to this young boy. It's for the Lord, my son. Oh, now you got to give it back. Yeah. <laughs> and they collect his lunch and they take it to Jesus. Here's what we got. We got five loaves and two fish. Now we've got our kids in here. So, hey, kids, look up here. Do you see what I have here? The food that I've got here? How many people do you think you could feed with that? Hmm. Depends on the person, huh? You think seven? Seven? Wow. Proverbs woman there, huh? <laughs> so I remember my mom used to like water down the steak sauce when it got empty, shake it up real good. Be like, we still got some? Yeah. It's biblical, right? But you look at that, and there's just something. I mean, I'm kind of a visual guy, so it's just handy to see that. 
And if you've ever seen the fish they eat over there, they don't look like that. I mean, they're, they're like sardines. They're tiny. And so they collect this. And I mean, out of the whole crowd, this is what they come up with. And the scripture is really specific that, that the number 5,000 is just men. So estimates are around 20,000 people. You've got men with their wives, with their kids. So I'm fine with 5,000 because that's miraculous enough for me. But think of a crowd of 20,000 people. And Jesus tells you, this is going to be your responsibility today. I want you to feed them. Go see what we got. And this is what you come back with. And Jesus does something when he gets this. And I think we can all relate to this. I think we've all dealt with with problems. We need to see that this is a problem. These people are hungry. That's a problem. Sometimes we grow up and we, we go to church and we... We have this picture painted that Christianity doesn't have any problems that come with it. And if you've got problems, well, you better check yourself because you're not right with God. This is a problem. You need to feed some 20,000 people. They're hungry. They're far from home. This is a problem. You and I deal with problems. We're called to carry the ministry of reconciliation. We're called to be the solution to problems. So we should make no apology for our problems, whether we should identify them. You know what? That's a problem. We've got 20,000 hungry people here, and I've just been put in charge of feeding them. You give them something to eat. And so I've rounded up everything we've got. Now you're faced with a scenario here. Your heart and your mind are at war trying to reconcile the situation, you're at a crossroads where your perspective concerning this is going to be the difference maker. It's very easy for a natural perspective of that's not even close to enough to prevail. But the perspective that I think we need to have is this is what we've got. And I love that that's what Jesus asks. He doesn't ask what do we need. He asks what do we have. I'm going to say that again because even I got goosebumps. He doesn't ask, what do we need? He asks, what do we have? God's provision is awesome. He gives us the things we need to fulfill the call that He's placed on our lives. And in this situation, when Jesus looks that disciple right in the eyes and says, you give them something to eat, You have to decide what perspective you're going to choose. Am I going to choose the perspective that we don't have what we need? Or am I going to choose the perspective that God will use what we've got? And so the food's rounded up, and you've got loaves and fishes, these five little loaves of bread, two pieces of fish. And it's brought back to Jesus. Jesus, this is what we've got. And Jesus takes them and he does some things. Now, I want to offer these as the keys to multiplication. To making something prosperous. To making it fruitful. To making it multiply. When Jesus asks, what do we have? 
They go and they find this. And they bring it back and Jesus commands, now we're in verse 39, that they all sit down. And they sat down in their groups. And it says this now in verse 41. I want us to pay attention to verse 41 because this is where we're going to find these keys. Jesus took what they had. And in verse 41 it says, He took the loaves and the two fish. And looking up toward heaven, If you want to write these things down as steps, step one, look toward heaven. Step one, look toward heaven. I think something's going on here. Sometimes I think maybe we we kind of mystify Jesus a bit. But he's doing something here. It's not like he's like, you know, radioing the mothership. Come in, heaven. Heaven, come in. He's turning his eyes toward heaven, which means he's not looking at the problem. He's decided to look at the solution. Sometimes we can be so distracted and fixated by the problem that it actually makes the problem prevail. If you're looking for an example, look at Jesus walking on the water, calling Peter out. He steps out of the boat and he's walking on the water until he takes his eyes off Jesus and starts looking at the problem. Man, I'm walking on water. Waves and wind. And when the eyes are turned to the problem, you begin to sink. But Jesus stops looking at the problem. He's not looking at a crowd of 20,000. Rather, he takes what we have and he looks toward heaven. I'd like for you to take something down for your notes. Psalm 121. Remember, we're looking at the keys to prosperity, multiplication. The keys to multiplication. It starts with looking toward heaven. Let me read this short psalm to you. Psalm 121. I lift my eyes up to the mountains from where my help comes from. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And he will not allow my foot to slip. He keeps me and he never sleeps. The Lord is my keeper. He's my shade in the sunshine and my light by the night. The Lord will protect me from all evil. He'll keep my soul in my going out and my coming in from this time and forevermore. That's a good way to engage our problems. Not to look at the problem itself, run the logistics, but to turn our eyes to the place where our help does come from. And it's the first thing Jesus does. He looks toward heaven. Step one, to see multiplication. Take your eyes off the problem and put your eyes on the solution. We've got to lift our eyes to heaven. We're no longer dealing with the situation or the circumstance limited by what is perceived as possible. But our hearts, our minds are turned toward the power and the authority of God to overcome. Step two, Jesus took those loaves, he took the fish, and he lifted his eyes toward heaven. Now, step two is not going to be found there where we're at in Mark. You've got to go to another gospel. When you go to the other gospel, you'll see the next thing he did after he turned his eyes to heaven was he gave thanks. 
If we want to see multiplication of good fruit in any aspect of our living, marriage, family, vocation, any aspect, ministry, if we want to see a multiplication of good fruit, one, we'll have to stop looking at problems and turn our eyes toward the solution. Two, we've got to be thankful. There can be no multiplication without gratitude. Thanksgiving is vital to prosperity. It's absolutely necessary. So necessary that it is absolutely and unapologetically the will of God for your life. I want to give you a verse. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 18. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. That kind of puts that on a short list of priorities, doesn't it? No matter what, that's the will of God for my life. No matter what the situation, no matter what the circumstance, God's will for my life is that I be grateful. Because something happens when we stop being grateful. The moment we stop being thankful, we become covetous. The moment we stop being grateful for the things that we have, is the moment we start wanting the things that we don't. Covetousness is a nasty business. I want to give you a passage of Scripture just to show you how nasty covetousness is. I mean, we know the commandment that you shouldn't covet. But I think it's important for us to know why. I've had my share of, of Christianity where there were rules and it's just because God says so. I've even carried over that kind of theology into parenting. Well, because daddy said so. And I found that it's really fruitful when you know why. When you know why, it can stir in us a motivation to do those things, a purpose behind those efforts. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. Ephesians chapter 5 is filled with wonderful wisdom and insight on Christian living, especially in marriage. But Ephesians chapter 5, when you get to verse 5, you'll see something. You'll, you'll see that there's a list of things that have no part in the kingdom of God. Now on that list is the one who is covetous. That means the one who's ungrateful. The one that is not grateful for what he has, but wants what he does not. The covetous one. And the covetous one is then described as something else. And it should put in us an awareness of just how Nasty covetousness is. It says no covetous person has any part in the kingdom of God. When you look up the verse, it'll read like this. No covetous person who is an idolater has any part in the kingdom of God. It should say something to us. Covetousness is idolatry. Now, idolatry is bad news. I mean, if you want to write this down for your notes, you can. You can look at Psalm 115, and you'll just see the bad news that is idolatry. Psalm 115 says that idols are the work of men. They're empty and vain in so many ways. They have eyes they can't see, ears they can't hear, a mouth but they can't speak. It goes on, the list goes on. And then it goes on to say this, that those who make them become like them and everyone who serves them. When we find ourselves covetous, when we find ourselves idolatrous, we cut off our eyes from having vision, our ears from hearing direction, 
our voice from speaking words of prophecy and, and the powerful blessing that can flow from our mouths. But negativity and carnality prevail. It's very important for us to be grateful to see prosperity and multiplication. In fact, it's gratitude that lets us get in the very presence of God. I'd like for you to write this down for your notes. Psalm 100, verse 4. Psalm 100, verse 4 used to be, and it still is, I guess, a really wonderful scripture song. I'll still sing it today. Just driving in the truck, you know. It'll come out. The verse reads like this. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. I think if you stop and examine that verse, you'll see that without thanksgiving, you don't even get past the gate. Gratitude grants us access to the presence of God for the purpose of offering to him our needs and desires and receiving from him his affirmation and provision. We've got to be a grateful people. I told you before we wanted to find that key to peace. I'd like for you to take this down in your notes. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Can you say that? With thanksgiving. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the key right there. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. I can tell you from my own life experience, there have been many times where I have prayed and not felt any peace. Now, I'm fulfilling that scripture to a certain extent. I'm offering my prayers and my supplications, but not receiving that peace that surpasses all understanding. And I think there's one little key that makes that whole thing work. That in our prayer life, as we're offering God our needs, our desires, the things that we're desiring to see Him move in power in, as we're surrendering those things, those prayers and supplications need to be offered with thanksgiving. And when we become a people who offer up our prayers with thanksgiving, it opens up a wonderful opportunity for the celebration of that peace that surpasses all comprehension and that guard that's set on our hearts and on our minds. So to see multiplication, you see Jesus is lifting up his eyes to heaven. He's looking at the solution, not the problem. And he's offering thanks, meaning that he's refusing to be covetous. He's not thinking, well, I wish we had a whole bunch of fish. Wish we had a whole bunch of bread. Must be nice. Those rich people. That's a, it's a bit of a joke. Sorry. Must be nice. He's not worried about what he doesn't have. Rather, he's grateful for what he does have. He can say, what do we have, not what do we need? He can turn his eyes to heaven to look to solution instead of stare at the problem. And then he can take what we have and say, I'm so grateful for this. Thank you. Instead of, what do you think you're doing? It's thank you. And then another step to multiplication and prosperity. Remember that first one is turn your eyes toward heaven. Look at the solution. That second step, gratitude. 
We can't be covetous. We can't want what we don't have. We need to enjoy, celebrate, and be grateful for what we do have because what we do have is what God's given us. Now, that third step is blessing. The Scripture says Jesus took the loaves and the fishes. Is it fishes? Fish. Fishes. He took the food and he lifted it up to heaven. He turned his eyes to God, looking to the solution, not the problem, offering thanks, refusing to be covetous. And then it says, and he blessed it. And he blessed it. I love that. I told you before, we use that word a lot. And I think it would benefit us all to just ask God, Father, will you teach me what blessing is? I want to know what that is. So that's not just a word in my Christian vocabulary, but that I have an understanding that I can value what it is that you brought into my life. If you look up the word blessing in the dictionary, you'll catch a few different definitions, but I want to give you one that stood out to me. To enable for success or prosperity. To enable for success or prosperity. To bless. But the reality is there's really only two things that something can be. Something is either blessed or it's cursed. These are opposites of one another. And as we see in the scripture, we'll see it's really pretty simple. God speaks something to us. I want us to catch it. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 26 and 28. God is speaking and he says this, See, I'm setting before you today blessing and curse. Just two things. And he's setting it before us. That's me and you. See, I'm setting before you today two things, blessing and curse. The blessing, now verse 27, which if you're kind of big on underlining things in your Bibles, I think this is one that might merit a little underlining. A little circling, maybe a little star next to it. I'm setting before you two things, blessing and curse. The blessing, if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God. The curse, if you don't listen to the commandments of the Lord your God. It's pretty simple theology, isn't it? What he's telling us is something incredible. To each one of us, no matter what, in every situation, in every circumstance, you are at a crossroads to turn one way or the other. You can choose the blessing or you can choose curse. In anything, in any aspect of marriage, any aspect of family, any aspect of business, any aspect of ministry, you can choose blessing or you can choose curse. The choice is up to you. And he doesn't just make it a riddle like that. Like, well, it's a coin toss, son. It's going to be one way or the other. But he tells you how to make the choice. You can choose blessing by doing it my way, or you can choose cursing by doing it some other way. But it's up to you. So Jesus is here, and he's lifting up the food. He's looking to heaven, looking at the solution. He's being grateful, not covetous. And he decides to bless. He makes a choice and a decision to bless the food. Now, there's something about this that I think we ought to catch, and I want to keep it simple for time's sake. In my life, in my experience, in the scripture that I read that my life is founded upon, 
To bring blessing onto anything is to remove curse from it. You can look to Genesis at the fall where the earth, the ground was cursed. And now I carry the ministry of reconciliation. And the scripture says that all of creation waits for the sons of God, the children of God, to walk in their calling and their purpose. That's a bit paraphrased, but it's in there. Because it's all wanting that curse lifted off so that it can be blessed. And we're at that crossroads in everything we deal with. So here's an example that's easy. In my life, with my finances, I lift the curse off, the the tithe. That's God's way of doing it. He said to do that. And he says, what happens when you do it his way? That's why I do it. It's really the only reason why I do it. Why else would you do it? But he says, this is the way that I want it done, and so I'm going to choose to do it that way. And in making that choice, I choose blessing, not curse. And blessing precedes something great. I think there's a reason why Jesus lifts his eyes toward heaven, gives thanks, and then blesses. Because blessing precedes prosperity and multiplication. You can see it in Genesis. Whether it's God speaking to Adam, whether it's God speaking to Noah, he blesses and says, be fruitful and multiply. Multiply. I want to give you a couple of passages from the Psalms. One from the Psalms, one from Proverbs. Psalm 128.1 says, How blessed is everyone who walks in the ways of the Lord. When we do it God's way, we're walking in blessing. Just like he said, I set before you two things, blessing and cursing. Blessing, do it my way. Cursing, do it your own way. Blessing enters into our lives when we choose to do things God's way. And here's the thing about the opposite of blessing. When you're dealing with cursing, when there is a curse present, when we've decided to do it our own way, or decided to do it another way, when we've decided to do it any way outside of God's way, by definition, according to what God said in Deuteronomy, that is going to open the door for cursing. Cursing will always remain until its cause is removed. I'll give you a passage of Scripture, and I'll explain it real quick, because we need to move fast. Write this down for your notes. Man, I'd love it if we could all catch this today. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 2. I was going to read a little bit like you just had Chinese food and got a fortune cookie. That's a little weird. But I want us to ask God to reveal to us what he's saying in this passage. Proverbs 26, 2. Like a sparrow in its flight, like a swallow flying, so a curse without a cause does not stand. These birds are flying, they've got nowhere to land. That's what he's saying. If they don't have a perch to stand on, they've got to keep on flying. So is a curse without a cause. When you take away the cause for the curse, it can't stay. Now, here's a problem. A problem is, as believers, we've not really caught this blessing and cursing, which is really what God set up from the very start. So we can have these decisions that are made where we're having these horrible consequences that are really the result of a curse, but we want to pray our way out of them. Or we want, you know, a minister to minister to those things. 
And I can just tell you, and I don't mean any offense by this, but specifically as it concerns financial counsel, anyone that comes to my office and says, hey, we're needing some help financially, the first thing I'm going to talk about is the tithe. Because you can't counsel the curse. Until you remove that cause, all of the sudden, when you remove the cause, the curse is gone. Then you can counsel. Then you can make choices and decisions that make changes. But as long as the cause remains, the curse stands. I'm telling you, it's a little bit different to preach these things because people don't hear them in churches today. But it's how God's established it. See, I've set before you two things, blessing and curse. Do it my way, blessing. Do it any other way, curse. And until the cause for that curse is removed, you're going to get the results of a curse. No matter how many prayer meetings, no matter how many church services, until the cause is removed, the curse remains. So Jesus is functioning in multiplication. He's looking to heaven, looking at the solution. He's grateful, and he wants to do it God's way. I wasn't there, so there's a little bit of reading into this, but when I see that he blessed it, I'm thinking, what does that mean? And I can't help but think that maybe he took a tithe of the bread and the fish and set it aside. Now, that's me reading into it, but the Scripture says he blessed it. And by definition, that means he did it God's way. And I'm not really sure how you serve 5,000 with that basket of food and do it God's way without separating for God what belongs to him. So who knows? I wasn't there. You can draw your own conclusion, ask the Spirit of God to show you. But the Scripture's clear. He looked to heaven, he gave thanks, he blessed it, then he did something else. And we're going to wind down with this. That first step is we've got to look to heaven, be solutions-oriented, not problem-minded, the next step's gratitude. We've got to be thankful. There can be no room for covetousness. We can't want what we don't have. We have to be grateful for what God has given us. The next step is blessing. That means the removal of any curse. That means doing it God's way. And when we do it God's way, we can expect God's promised result. And then this final step. Jesus took it, looked to heaven, gave thanks, blessed it, and then he gave it away. If we want to see multiplication, we've got to be givers. I told you before, it's not just a financial message. If I want my marriage to prosper, I need to be a giver. I need to be a meter of needs and not a taker. If I want my sons to grow in righteousness, I need to be a giver. I need to impart to them the things that God has freely bestowed upon my life. We've got to be givers if we want to see multiplication. And you know, giving is actually a manifestation of love. And it makes sense that it would be this final step toward multiplication and prosperity. I want you to think of a really common passage of Scripture in John 3.16. Uh, for some of us it comes to mind. Others may not be so familiar. You can write it down for your notes and look at it later. But John 3.16, it reads like this, that for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that everyone who would believe in Him would never perish, but have eternal life. I can't get past just the first section. For God so loved that He gave. Giving is a manifestation of love. We're called to reveal to this world that we're the disciples of Jesus Christ by our love for one another. I mean, we're meant to be givers, not takers. Providers, not consumers. 
And again, it's not just financial. It's in every aspect of everything that we steward and everything that we cherish, our time, our anointing, and our gifting. I want to give you a few passages of Scripture and we're going to close. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. God, who didn't spare his own son, delivered him up for us. How will he not also freely give us all things? Put that passage of Scripture in there because I think that's what's necessary for us to understand to become givers. It's hard for me to give things that are mine. But when I can come to the understanding that everything that I have was freely given to me by God, it becomes much easier. I think if you want to develop the mentality of a giver, to not go through all the steps, lift eyes to heaven, give thanks, bless, and then think, you know what, I'm kind of hungry too. Pretty good. We've got to come to the place where we can see that everything we have is freely given to us. God's anointing, his provision, the breath that we breathe, it's all a gift from God. And there's a reason for that, and there's something necessary for us to catch in order to become givers. I want to give you another passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Now, we haven't received the spirit of the world, is what the passage says. We haven't received the spirit of the world, but we've received the spirit of God. So that. Now, I'd like, can you give me a so that? Now, I'm, I want that because I want it to kind of perk up our attention. We've not been given the spirit of the world, but we've been given the spirit of God so that. This seems like a big deal to me. Because the giving of the spirit of God is really the point of everything. It's the reason for the cross, the death of Jesus Christ, the resurrection, and the ascension. We get hung up on that. It's so we can be forgiven. Well, forgiveness is a wonderful benefit. But Jesus said, hey, I'm doing all of this because it's good that I go to the Father. Because when I go to the Father, He'll send the Holy Ghost. That's the point. So we haven't received the Spirit of the world, but we've received the Spirit of God so that, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Because when we come into an awareness that everything we have is given to us by God, we step into a mentality of a giver. We can easily respond to Jesus' call to go and freely give as it was freely given to us. We become stewards of all the things, not possessors. And we simply share what God has bestowed upon us in his generosity. And then something happens when that takes place. That final step to see multiplication. Looking to the solution, being grateful and refusing to be covetous, blessing, doing it God's way, and then giving 
it leads to something great. Told you we were going to find out who's in the driver's seat. Here it is. Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verse 38. We're going to close with this. After looking to heaven to be solutions-minded, after refusing to be covetous for what you don't have, but being grateful for what God's given you, after lifting every curse, making the decision, I'm going to do this God's way, not my way. My way to give this to 20,000 people would be to cut it in the smallest pieces you could possibly imagine. I don't want to do it my way. It'll leave people empty and hungry. But after looking to heaven for solution, after being grateful for what we have, after making a commitment to relift all curse and do it God's way, that final act of giving does something incredible. Luke chapter 6, verse 38 talks about the power of giving. Give and it'll be given to you. It'll pour out into your lap. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. And then this last statement is meant to be a wake-up call to each one of us for every aspect of our living. For it's by your standard of measure that it'll be measured back to you in return. You know, there was a, a situation in my life. We're going to close with this. Pastor Jared, if you make your way up here. I really felt confronted with a massive problem. I could see the problem. Of course, you've heard me talk. I have no problem acknowledging problems. They're real. And I remember it was in a time of preparation. The problem was on my mind. I was praying about it, which I think is a good thing. I think that's, you know, looking toward heaven, looking toward the solution. I just remember asking something. I remember asking God to give me something. I remember saying, God, will you give me strength? And I don't think that's a bad prayer. I really don't. Um, but that day something happened. I mean, it was no different than if somebody had flipped a light switch and a light had come on. I remember asking God, God, will you give me strength? And something just clicked in my brain. You got it backwards. I actually started laughing. You know, just kind of chuckled. And then apologized, you know, God, I'm really sorry for that prayer. I'd like to... I'd like to repray that if I can. I know it sounds silly, right? Instead of saying, God, will you give me strength? After having that light come on and realizing that's backwards, I said, God, concerning this problem, I give you all my strength. And I think there's a mentality shift that we could embrace as believers to see something great. And instead of saying, God, give us lots of bread and fish, 
when you say, God, all that we have, we give you. And then it can open the door for something great to happen. It can open the door for us to be grateful. It can open the door for us to do things God's way and not the world's way. It can open the door for us to be givers and not takers and consumers. God, give me more, give me more. But God, everything I have, I give to you. You know, I don't even remember what that problem was that day. I really don't. It obviously didn't prevail. But I'll never forget what happened in my life that day. That was a day that I came into awareness of the power of multiplication. And that it's not just a story that testifies that Jesus is the Son of God. But it's an example set before us. When we confront the problems in this world, we have an example set before us to look toward heaven for solution and to always be grateful for what God has given us because what He's given us is enough. All we need to find out is, what's your way? What am I supposed to do with what I have? How can I do this in a way, Father, that it's blessed? It's not my way, but your way. And then understanding that everything that we have comes from Him releases us to be givers. And it's then when we begin to function like that, we start to see the needs of the masses met. That's all that problem is. The miracle is bread increasing. Here you go, bud. The miracle is more bread and more fish. Don't be distracted by the miracle. Look at what God did. He met people's needs. He made provision in their time of desperation. We have that same calling and that same anointing to be able to take what we have, to stop coveting for what we don't have, but to take what we have, look toward heaven and say, you've given us this. It's enough. Just show us what to do with it. We're so grateful. And all that we have, we surrender to you. We carry everything we need to meet every single need in this community. Because what he's given us is enough. And so what I want to do is I want to encourage us to take on that mind of Christ. To take a look at this and not just see it as a wonderful story of a really exceptional miracle. But see it as an instruction for how to deal with the problems that we're confronted with. Thank you for listening to this message from Champions Church. We invite you to join us this Sunday for our celebration worship service. For more information, please visit us at champschurch.com.